0: The politics of space and pros of black holes. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. All eyes have been on the presidential race, but the 2020 election will also have an impact on the U.S. space program. From congressional funding to NASA leadership, what's ahead? We'll talk about the political science behind the rocket science with Space Policy Online founder and editor Marcia Smith. Then, black holes have captured the attention of the masses with breakthroughs in imaging, gravitational wave detection, and Nobel Prize recognition. So what's spurring this new dawn of black hole discovery, and how can scientists communicate such complex phenomena with a general audience? We'll talk with Jana Levin, professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University, about her new book, Black Hole Survival Guide. That's ahead on Are We There Yet, here on America's Space Station. Space missions don't always start on the launch pad. They start from the halls of Congress. NASA's budget is controlled by lawmakers, and last week there was a pretty big election here in the U.S., while all eyes were on the presidential race, down-ballot races determine who holds the levers of power of Congress. Marcia Smith is following those congressional races, along with the presidential election, from the perspective of space policy. She's the founder and editor of SpacePolicyOnline.com, and she joins us now. Marcia, thanks for speaking with us.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, first of all, before we jump into the details, um, can you kind of explain why Congress is just so important to space policy? Why are we having this discussion in the first place?
1: Congress's most important role, of course, is money. Uh, Congress has the power of the purse under the Constitution. So you can have a lot of policy, and there are a few things that you can do that just require policy or regulation and not money, but they're few and far between. Almost anything anybody wants to do in space, uh, in the government at least, uh, requires an appropriation from Congress.
0: No bucks, no buck Rogers, right? That's the, that's the phrase. Exactly.
1: exactly. And although there are a lot of commercial companies out there these days, but those commercial companies depend on government contracts in many cases and not to mention government development of technology. So it's not as though the commercial sector is out there unaffected by congressional appropriations. It really is. Every sector of space is, uh, needs Congress to appropriate money. And also to set policy and, you know, you hear a lot about how companies want to have a clear regulatory environment where regulations often begin with laws that are passed by Congress. So it really is involved in every facet of space.
0: And that's why you've kept a close eye on um, the results of of this election. And in your analysis, you wrote one of the biggest changes uh, from this policy standpoint in Congress is the loss of uh, Representative Kendra Horn, uh, a Democrat uh, why is this such a, a blow to space policy?
1: Well, she was very knowledgeable about space, of course. Before she uh, ran for Congress, at one point in her career, she would worked for the Space Foundation. So she was knowledgeable. She was an advocate for it. Uh, the bill that she has co-sponsored in-house the for the NASA authorization for 2020 does have some provisions in it that are somewhat controversial, and it's not clear whether... Other Democrats will pick up on that or if they'll try to get the bill passed before she leaves. Uh, the most uh, important of those is the fact that the House bill would require the human landing systems for Artemis to be owned by the government rather than by the private sector, which is what the administration wants to do. So she, she has been very influential on space policy and we don't know who will replace her as chair of the space subcommittee in the House. That's uh, it's likely to be someone who is a space advocate, but whether they're as involved in space as she has been remains to be seen.
0: Um, there are some seats still to be decided in the Senate, but one Senate seat that we know um, went to Mark Kelly, a retired NASA astronaut. He was elected to Arizona's a Senate seat. Um, how do you think his experiences with NASA will play out politically? Do you see him finding his way onto one of these committee seats?
1: It's always possible. You know, there have been a few other uh, spacefarers who have been in the Senate. You know, John Glenn really was not a forceful advocate for NASA when he was there. You know, he represented Ohio, and so he represented Ohio interests. And uh, Bill Nelson, who of course became a, a, a spaceflight participant, he was a politician for his career, but he flew when he was a member of the House of Representatives, he did become fairly influential in space. It, So, you know, it it really depends on the senator and and where his interests lie and where his constituent interests lie. Uh, Bill Nelson was from Florida, which has a huge space presence. If you look at Mark Kelly, you know, and and what he's been campaigning on, it's really not been on space issues so much. There is a space presence in Arizona, of course, but it's the issues there seem to be more along the lines of health care and other types of issues. So he's going to be there to represent his constituents and what they are interested in.
0: Major news outlets, including NPR and AP, have projected Joe Biden as the winner of this presidential election. Um, President Trump is continuing to challenge those results. But looking broadly and and assuming we are going to have a Joe Biden administration, what is NASA going to look like?
1: I'm not sure that anybody can answer that question right now. Uh, I think that generally speaking, Democrats and Republicans are in harmony about what NASA should be doing. And there have been attempts by the Trump administration to cancel some NASA programs, especially in earth science and astrophysics and education. And they've been rejected by Congress on a bipartisan basis. So I I think there's a lot of uh, unanimity at the macro level as to what NASA should be doing. There may be some fine tuning within it, I think almost everybody thinks that the 2024 date for Artemis is going to disappear, but not many people thought it was realistic in the first place. So there's no big surprise there. But I, 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 do, I would not anticipate a decision to undo the Artemis program. They might not call it Artemis, but uh, the concept of returning humans to the moon and going on to Mars, I think is pretty much set in policy at this point. And uh, earth science is everybody says, Biden's gonna focus a lot on earth science. NASA already gets almost $2 billion a year for earth science. And that has been supported, as I said, on a bipartisan basis in Congress. And so I I don't see any major disruptions in NASA, except, you know, Jim Bridenstine has told uh, our colleague, Irene Klotz, that he will not stay if if Biden takes over because he thinks a NASA administrator should have uh, the complete confidence of the president he or she serves. So, you know, we'll have some new leadership there, but uh, I, I guess I don't anticipate any big changes because of a new president or who's running Congress. To me, the big issue for NASA and all space activities is going to be the budget and the fact that we have a three trillion dollar budget deficit and how they're and they're looking at passing another COVID-19 relief package with more trillions in it. And at some point, someone's going to get concerned about the deficit. And I think you're going to see a a retrenchment in terms of the generosity that Congress has for some of these programs.
0: I want to go back to, um, you talked about Uh, Administrator Jim Bridenstine, and, you know, we read in Irene Klotz's piece in Aviation Weekly that he said he does not plan to stay on even if um, President-elect Biden asks him to stay there. There had been a petition going around on Twitter to get him to stay. But him stepping down, is that at all surprising to you? I mean, we kind of saw that coming, right?
1: It's very rare for uh, political appointees to stay over to the next administration. It's not unheard of, but it's unusual. And, of course, Dan Golden, I think, is the only NASA administrator who stayed over three successive administrations, from uh, George H. W. Bush to the Clinton, all eight Clinton years, and then uh, into George W. Bush's term. So it's possible, but it's rare.
0: And um, I'm going to ask you to bring out your crystal ball here, Marsha. Any, any ideas as to who might be tapped for that, uh, that NASA chief? I know it took quite a bit of time for the Trump administration to name Jim Bridenstine. But one, do you know who it will be? And, and two, is it high up on the priority list for a, a Biden administration?
1: I know. I don't know who it's going to be. You know, this is the, the, the uh, ritualistic activity after any presidential election, even if it's the same president getting reelected is who, who's going to take over what position in government. And th- there's an old saying that says that the people who know, aren't saying, and the people who are saying, don't know. So <laughs> there are names being floated around really good names, but you know, whether the Biden administration would actually consider any of these people is up in the air. There certainly are some near term decisions that will need to be made at NASA very near term because the uh, HLS contracts end in February. So someone's gonna need to decide which companies are gonna proceed or if they're just gonna push the whole thing out. So whether they're going to have uh, ordinarily, as you know, the political appointees resign. So that's both Bridenstine and Moorhard, and the top civil servant who's the associate administrator comes in as acting until they get someone confirmed. Uh, Last time, that was Robert Lightfoot, who ended up being acting for 15 months. This time, Steve Jerzyk is in that job as associate administrator. So uh, on January 20th, if Bridenstine and Moorhard walk out the door, then presumably Steve will be the acting administrator. And whether they will leave it up to him to decide what to do or try to get an administrator in there first off, uh, I just don't know.
0: So we will have to wait, which uh, fortunately is something we have a lot of practice with uh, this past week, right? Well,
1: yes, and as we were, you were discussing, Trump has not conceded, and so this is not formal. And if it waits until the Electoral College meets in December and Trump does not allow any of the transition activities to proceed until then, the, uh, an incoming Biden administration will have a very short, short amount of time to do the kind of transition activities they normally do.
0: Well, we've been speaking with Marcia Smith. She's the founder and editor of SpacePolicyOnline.com. Marsha, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much. It was fun. Still to come, the black hole boom. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? Here on America's Space Station, I'm Brendan Byrne. Black holes have captured the attention of the masses, with researchers making breakthroughs in imaging, gravitational wave detection, and winning Nobel Prize recognition. So what's spurring this new dawn of black hole discovery? And how can scientists communicate such complex phenomena to general audiences? Well, to talk about all things black holes, we're joined by Jana Levin. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University. Her new book is out this week, Black Hole Survival Guide. Jana, thanks for speaking with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Well, Jana, you know, the one thing um, I can never really wrap my head around is what a black hole is. And and in the book, you paint a picture of this phenomenon so eloquently. I'm, I'm wondering if you might be able to give our listeners a taste by explaining just what these things are.
2: Yeah, I've really enjoyed kind of dispelling a lot of misimpressions about black holes in this book. Uh, people often think of a black hole as a dense object, as though you go up to the black hole and you will knock on some in- intense surface. Actually, black holes are more of a place than a thing. They're actually empty. They're, they're uh, nothing, as I describe in the book, which is one of the first chapters to create this sense for people about how kind of austere they are as, um, as an astrophysical phenomenon. So A lot of people hear the story that a star collapses and makes a black hole. That's just one avenue to making a black hole. It is not the definition of the black hole. So it is true that it's a death state of a star. You start with a very massive star, that star collapses. What happens is eventually it gets so dense, the star, not the black hole, but that it creates around it a curved space-time, as Einstein imagined, that was so strong that not even light could escape falling in. But what happens then, we call that the event horizon, and what happens then is the star is forced to continue to collapse. So the star is gone. It falls towards the interior of the black hole, creating this incredible extreme curvature in the center, which we can talk about. But the event horizon, which is really what we mean when we talk about a black hole, is a place. There's nothing there. So if you were to fall across the event horizon, your experience would be to some extent unspectacular. You would just be falling into the shadow cast by this extreme curvature of the space-time. It would be no more dramatic in some sense than stepping into the shadow of a tree. And so the event horizon is really what we're talking about when we're talking about taking pictures of black holes, when we talk about how big they are, that's the shadow cast by the event horizon.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about the event horizon, because I know that there have been some, some pretty interesting breakthroughs recently about you know, th- actually seeing what one of these things looks like. I mean, kind of dive in a little bit more about what the event horizon is and, and what we know more about now because of you know, some of the scientific breakthroughs that have happened.
2: It really is tremendous that when you tell people that prior to a year ago, Um, 2019. The the world had never seen an image of a black hole. And that surprises people because we discuss observations of black holes, but we're almost always talking about indirect observations. So really the mayhem that black holes create around them when there's debris or stars or other things that veer too close. And that's what we see. That's what we detect with telescopes. Uh, But we have never taken a picture of a black hole. And this incredibly exciting announcement was made in April of 2019 uh, from the Event Horizon Telescope project, where they revealed the first ever image of a black hole. And in that image, what you are seeing really is a bright ring of hot matter encircling the shadow, the event horizon. And so what you're really seeing is the shadow cast because this bright ring um, illuminates what you would not be able to see otherwise, which is essentially the event horizon. The event horizon telescope doesn't exactly get all the way to the event horizon, but it gets incredibly close. It's as close as uh, we've ever been able to detect anything near a black hole. And so when that image was revealed, and if people saw interstellar, <laughs> um, it was a pretty good prediction of what of what the image would look like. Um, it was really uh, this stunning moment where even though we knew we had great predictions for what it would look like, it was still quite remarkable to, for a billion people on one day to lay eyes for the first time in human history on a black hole event horizon.
0: I mean, and is, is it just going to get better or, you know more clear or get closer? I mean, it, it, theoretically, can we see better pictures of it?
2: Well, so here's here's some of the interesting things that will happen next. The Event Horizon Telescope is a very long project. It took decades um, collecting data for a couple of years, but it took decades to, to organize, to rally. So what the Event Horizon Telescope is, is it is a collection of observatories around the globe that work in concert even though the earth is rotating and things are happening at different times to make the the, this global earth-sized observatory work as though it was simultaneously taking a snapshot of the sky and um and so you need something as big as the size of the earth because The black hole is actually small. And when you think about resolving small things, we want bigger and bigger telescopes to resolve small things. So we needed a telescope the size of the Earth. Now, the argument that black holes are small is also something people don't understand. They always hear this verbiage about there are these monsters and, uh, you know, winds of destruction. But actually, the whole point of the black hole is that it's heavy but small. So if you were to take a black hole the size of the sun, the mass of the sun it would only be six kilometers across. I mean, that's stunningly small. That's smaller than a city. And, um, and if you think about trying to resolve something that small, it's actually very difficult. So what you need is an incredibly supermassive black hole. We have one in the center of our galaxy, which we call Sag A star, because we see it in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius. It is 4 million times the mass of the sun, but it's, only, it's less than 20 times the width of the sun across So think about how exceptionally tiny that is in space, given how much mass, four million times mass of the sun uh, is affiliated with that black hole. So to see something that's only 20 times the width of the sun on the sky across and pushing it 26,000 light years away, you are trying equivalently to resolve something like a piece of fruit on the moon. That's how small it is. And so um, it was an extraordinary achievement. But the big surprise at the reveal was that we didn't get a picture of Sagittarius A star. We did not get a picture of our own black hole. There was only one other candidate. And that is an absolutely gigantic black hole in the center of M87, which is a galaxy about 55 million light years away. So much further, but the black hole is so much heavier. It's 6 billion times the mass of the sun in that vicinity that it subtends about the same size on the sky. And and so the big surprise was the first picture we ever took was in a different galaxy, M87. So what's next is, of course, to try to capture Sagittarius A-star. Mm-hmm. And that would be very exciting.
0: The book is framed around a theoretical encounter with a black hole. And, and I don't want to give too much away about what's in it, but I mean, You told us that if if we would be on that event horizon, it would be pretty unremarkable to us. But I've got to assume if the two of us found ourselves pretty close to one of these things, um, some bad things would happen, right? What what would happen if if, if we found ourselves uh, in the vicinity of one of these black holes?
2: Well, lots of bad things can happen around black holes. Um, If there is debris and magnetic fields, the black holes actually create these magnetic storms. They basically drive these astronomical ray guns. So you can be blasted by these jets that are uh, created outside of the black hole. We see jets that are sometimes millions of light years across. We see jets that are so powerful that they blast holes in other galaxies, presuming, you know, presumably uh, annihilating any emergence of life on any planets there. So so they are quite lethal in their way. Um, so if you're around a black hole, you don't want to get in the direction of the ray gun. You will be. You will be uh, sprayed with x-rays and gamma rays, which obviously would deteriorate. It would be like uh, being exposed to intense radiation. Um, And if you cross the event horizon, your doom is sealed. That is for sure. (laughs) So you don't want to cross the event horizon, even though that moment itself might not be dramatic, Um, what comes next is is pretty terrible.
0: Pretty terrible. All right, so I will stay very, very far away from them.
2: (laughs) In in fact, you know, Sir Roger Penrose was just awarded the Nobel Prize uh, in October. We were all very excited about that. For work he did in the 60s, which proved that once you cross the event horizon, there is this inevitability of marching forward towards what we call a singularity, which is a region of infinite, curvature. And, um, and, and as many people have described, you will be flayed and torn apart as you approach that region in space time. But more profoundly, which uh, I don't think a lot of people realize, is that from the outside, if you and your astronaut friend chose different paths and one of you stayed outside, you would imagine that that point, that dreaded a uh, point of annihilation to be the center of this black hole. But for the person who crosses, it's not a point in space at all. Actually, their space time is so deformed relative to yours that they perceive this as a moment in the future, as a point in time. So you can no more avoid the singularity than you can avoid the elapse of time, the inevitability of time approaching you in the future. Um, so that idea really is due to Roger proving, Sir so Roger proving that that was the case for all black holes. And that's why your doom is absolutely sealed. There's nothing you can do.
0: Doom sealed. That is good to know. <laughs> good to know. No no going back. Uh, Janet, you, meant, <laughs> you mentioned uh, uh, two things. We, we, we talked about the... Uh, the, the 2019 images of, of the event horizon, and then also the, the Nobel Prize recognition for, for black hole research. But there's also um, work on LIGO and the gravitational waves. Um, that's kind of been propelling this moment of, of black hole discovery. How, how has uh, LIGO and these gravitational wave breakthroughs helped our understanding of, of what black holes are?
2: Uh, it's an extraordinary story, the story of LIGO. Um, my, my previous book, Black Hole Blues was on that, on that climb. I, I followed the experiment um, for years to describe just the tenacity of this kind of Mount Everest climbing story of trying to make it to the summit. Uh, in the 50 years over which LIGO was I- imagined to build, um, even the original architects like Ray Weiss and Kip Thorne uh, were not sure it would succeed. It was just a tremendous scientific ambition and hoping nature would provide. And actually, a lot of people on the project said, oh, we might never see black holes. Hopefully, we'll detect other things, but not black holes. And that's why it was called Black Hole Blues, because Ray Weiss, who is now a Nobel Prize winner, said to me, if we don't detect black holes, this whole thing's a failure. And he felt it on the eve of the most advanced instrument coming online. Um, and uh, and it was within a couple of weeks that the first detection was made. So what LIGO does, which is extraordinarily different than anything else, is it does not take pictures of the sky. If you think about astronomy since Galileo, almost everything is taking, collecting light with telescopes, light of different varieties, but collecting light with telescopes. LIGO is a recording device. It is like a giant uh, at- antenna, and it records... The ringing of space-time if you imagine space-time ringing like a drum um, and so when two black holes collide they're like mallets on this drum they create this ringing in space-time you could technically if you were nearby hear it with your ears in principle it's literally much closer to sound uh, in that sense and so that's why we always talk about LIGO as recording things and um, And when it made its first detection, it did detect two black holes orbiting each other, merging into one quiet black hole. They detected the sound of that collision that happened over a billion years ago. And so when when LIGO plays its discovery, it plays it back to us as as sound. You can listen to what it sounds like.
0: Jenna, the the way that this book is written and and the way that we've been having this conversation, it it really kind of puts these things into perspective. I'm wondering just... How important effective science communication is when explaining these things that are pretty much mind-blowing. We talked about space-time and black holes and, and all that. But to be able to explain it in a way um, that you know someone like me can understand. I mean, how important is it as, as a scientist to be an effective communicator when it comes to these, these very elaborate and intense phenomenon?
2: I appreciate the question. Uh, in the science community, for a very long time, it was frowned upon to try to reach out uh, with discoveries in this way. It was considered a mere distraction from our, our more important work in the lab. That was kind of the attitude. And, and I've never felt that way. I've always felt that even for my PhD students, It's a long haul to go from your physics classes, your math classes to the big picture, which is exhilarating. It's that that draws us to the science in the first place. So I advise a lot of them to read the popular level books, even though one day they will be experts, technical experts in this field, that it opens the mind to speak in plain language about uh, these extraordinary ideas. And I even have other physicists who will tell me after reading a a book saying you know I never thought of it that way you said it in this way and I just never thought of it that way so it's not just this uh, I'm reaching across to others I very much write books that I want to read that I love and and I think that that's a very important distinction I think it removes this attitude of oh we're coming down from the mountain with this tablet to tell you Um, I very much with with the book about LIGO as well I felt I wanted to show the process and not just declarations of discoveries. And, um, and so I, I do think that there's, there's also art and poetry in this. You look at some of the great science writers, they're exceptional nonfiction writers, exceptional uh, among the best in the world. And I think that we have to reclaim um, science as a subject for literature, both nonfiction and fiction. And I think that that is how we move people, and that is how um, we we have a culture that appreciates that science is a pillar in culture.
0: So there's there's this beautiful artwork in here as well. Um, where did that come from, and how important was it to include these these illustrations to kind of explain uh, some of these you know uh, concepts?
2: I really believe the artwork transformed the book into an object, so that it's not. It's not just the, the quality of the writing, but there's this whole other level now because it's like this beautiful little object. The artist is Leah Halloran. She's a very good friend of mine. And I was pretty near the end of the book when it dawned on me that I wanted this. I wanted original artwork in the book and not just kind of professionally drafted illustrations or figures. So I, um, I reached out to my friend Leah and she did uh, 23 original paintings for the book. She including my author image is instead of a photo is a painting um, by leah and and I just love it I, I We worked on it very closely, I knew exactly what I wanted, and Leah just has this wonderful inky style and um, and she converted these original paintings into these black and white images for the book and um, I think they they really offer a lot in the spirit of when you see an image, sometimes these difficult concepts can can coalesce and and take root more firmly in the mind.
0: Mm-hmm. The the book, uh, Black Hole Survival Guide, it's a great read. It's uh, a pocket sized, pretty m- well. I mean, if you had big pockets, it's it's travel sized.
2: <laughs> so it's so cute. <laughs> it's and so
0: little. It is it is titled Survival Guide. Um, I'm wondering, am I ever going to need to use it? What are the chances that I'm going to have to encounter a black hole? And how do I stay away from it? As I've now learned that uh, my fate is sealed if I do. <laughs> well, um,
2: it's terribly unlikely right now. Um, to travel to the nearest black hole would take thousands of years traveling at the speed of light and we can't travel at the speed of light but there is a trick if we ever learned to travel very very close to the speed of light you can't avoid that thousands of years will have elapsed on the earth but for you the astronaut on that journey the faster you go near the speed of light the shorter your experience of the passage of time will be so you could arrive vigorous in youth if you go fast enough. Um, and so we'll see if we will ever be on the verge of such exceptional technology. There's lots of good reasons to think that that will never be possible. But, um, but we are looking at uh, having little tiny detectors. They're kind of like little tiny sails that we're people are designing to try to launch very close to the speed of light. So while it might be hard to get a whole person or a whole spacecraft going, we might be able to do this with smaller detectors and let them go through the experience of sending back to us um, information about what's out there.
0: Well, I will keep the book nearby just in case uh, any of that changes. (laughs) We've been speaking with Jana Levin. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University. The new book is called Black Hole Survival Guide. Jana, thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Thank you so much. Great to be on.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at AWTY space. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet podcast, or you can shoot me an email. Are We There Yet at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nellie Ontiveros. Happy belated birthday, Nellie. And our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.